0: Well, during the holiday season, uh, we, uh, we, we have a little bit of fun. And the fun is this, that uh, each of the, on the preaching team just gets to choose something that's on their heart. And, uh, uh, you know, I normally teach in the context of a series, and we work very hard to sort of coordinate it and all. But, but during August, we, we just get that chance just to share something that is, uh, has, has gripped us. And... And so uh, I've got one Sunday to talk to you about something that I'm thinking through and I feel very passionate about. Um, And uh, so let's just pray and we'll get straight into it. Heavenly Father, I just want to say thank you to you for the opportunity that we have to worship together freely. But also, Lord God, thank you that this is all in the context uh, of a work that you are doing in our nation namely the church and in fact it's something you're doing all over the world the church and we bear with us the presence of Jesus we bear the power of the Holy Spirit we bear the the precious message of the gospel but help us Lord God to uh, to be uh, winsome and to be wise in the way that we speak to people and also about what we speak about. So Lord, I want to just say, uh, the Holy Spirit, would you help me now to communicate something that I believe is crucial to our message and to do it, Lord God, with power and indeed authority. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. So I was sat in my study at home. By the way, I'm going to make one apology at the beginning. I've, my, I've got a bit of asthma going on at the moment, so I'm going to, I tend to get excited. Then my voice fails and then it's all embarrassing. So I'm going to try and... Speak slowly and in a measured way, so forgive me if the energy's down, but I'm just trying to manage my voice, okay? Enough said. So, um, I was sitting in my study at home and just looking up at the bookshelf, and on that bookshelf there's a lot of books that I bought and still haven't read, and lots of books I have read and stuff have you, but one little title caught my eye, and uh, I think it's probably the best title of any book that I've ever read, uh, and it's called The Audacity of Hope. How many of you know who wrote The Audacity of Hope? Barack Obama, yeah. Actually, I haven't read this book. I've just scanned it. But I bought it in an airport in the States to read on the plane, and then I I think I, I, I got caught up in something more important like watching the Transformers movie or something like that, you know. Something of real significance, importance, and stuff like that. But I bought this book, but I love the title, The Audacity of Hope. And many people who are not followers of Jesus, are irritated by the fact that we seem, as followers of Jesus the world over, to have something that they perceive as different. And there is a hope within us, and it, is, it seems audacious to them. It seems presumptuous. It seems precocious. It seems ridiculous. And to the point of offense. And so I love the idea of the audacity of hope. And that title just sort of You know, I got the book down off the shelf and I was thumbing through it again. I thought, I've just got to read this cover to cover because I've ruined it almost by dipping into it so many times. But the audacity of hope, I thought, well, you know, that actually rings a bell at a number of levels for me as a follower of Jesus. Not least because Peter says in 1 Peter, and we'll have it come up on the screen, uh, a little verse, and uh, let's just look at that. 1 Peter 3, it says here, but in your hearts... In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And I thought to myself, I thought, what is the hope that I carry? What is the hope that you are carrying? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I hope that no one is hopeless in this congregation. I hope that every single one of you has some hope. Maybe you're not even a follower of Jesus yet. You're still sort of working it out and thinking it through. We've all been on the same journey. And maybe you're just hoping that your flight to Tenerife on Thursday is not so postponed or canceled and stuff like that. You're looking forward to a holiday or whatever. I hope that everybody here has got some hope in something. But as Jesus... As followers of Jesus, we have a very specific thing. It's called the gospel, the good news, the essence of our faith. So I'm thinking about this, the audacity of hope and the hope that we carry within us and always be ready to share that hope. And then I found myself asking the question, what would be the hope that I would want to share with somebody on the airplane when I'm going on holiday if I'm not watching the Transformers movie? What would that hope be? And I began to realize that actually, for every Christian, that hope might have a little sort of nuances and differences, maybe based on experience, maybe based on years of Bible study, maybe, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. And I thought, well, what what was the hope that Peter was wanting to drill down into? What was the hope that he was trying to express? Now here's just a little, it may not be fun for you, but it's fun for me. I just want you just to turn to your neighbor and just, if you're a follower of Jesus, try and articulate that hope. What, just, you know, just quickly articulate, what is the hope that you have in Jesus? What does that mean? And if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're not a follower of Jesus, just say, you know, I'm, I'm, you know tell them where you're going for your holiday. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, okay, just turn. share what is the hope? What is this hope that we're supposed to be ready to share? <clears throat> Always be prepared to give an account for the hope that is within you. All right, switch if you haven't uh, had a chance to say your bit. Switch. Right, conversation's beginning to fade, so maybe we're there. Okay, thank you. I hope that that was helpful. I hope that that maybe even put you on the spot a bit to the degree that you're thinking, gosh, I've got to try and get my head together about this. What I've observed is that, depending upon who you're talking to, uh, and in what season, and what age, that hope has variances. There are aspects of the gospel that, that have variations. So for example, in the 21st century, here in, uh, in Western Europe, and indeed North America, that hope would be probably have something to do with God being with us, God being our Father for us and not against us, and God forgiving our sin, dealing with our stuff. And that's very central to our gospel. It's not wrong, it's just one facet of it. When you look at the scriptures, When you look at the, and of course, the Acts of the Apostles is great here because it gives you an opportunity to hear Peter, for example, at the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles preaching the gospel, this good news for the first time. You know, what are they talking about? Are they talking about those things, God with us? You know, God is my Father, God has forgiven me. Well, no. What they are saying is, what Peter is saying and what the gospels and indeed the scriptures frequently talk about, first of all that Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah. Now that's not necessarily a burning issue for us. You know, you, you, you try and share things that are not, not only important to you but important to your hearers. Now in this day, everybody was saying when is, the, when is God's anointed one coming? So Peter steps up to the plate and says, well I've got news for you. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the Anointed One. He is the Messiah. And of course, that was very meaningful, whether you bought it or not, very meaningful to Jewish listeners. The second aspect of his gospel was was this. I mean, to summarize, he said uh, in Acts 3.15, he says, you killed the author of life, but God has raised him from the dead. You killed the author of life, we have killed God, we have crucified the savior of the world. So he talks at the cross. Now, you know, we talk a lot about the cross, so we definitely have an overlay there. And and in what Christians have always believed is that in dying on the cross, Jesus bore our sins, the sins of the world, your sin, my sin, and he substituted himself so that the sin that would take me down, that would consign me to an eternity in hell, actually is imputed to him. And I get his life. Now that's a deal and a half. That's a deal and a half. Now in my family, a little sort of, bit of domestic nonsense, uh, you may, somebody said to me as I was pulling in, because like, Flissy isn't here today, I was driving Flissy's car, and she said, and the person on, on the car park, she said, oh you've got a new car. I said, no, it's my wife's. And in fact, in my family, we've just done a swap. Fliss has given her car to Samuel and Sarah and our grandson, and she has got his car. And uh, I've just spent 400 pounds sorting it out. Uh, You never stop being a parent, do you, you know? (laughs) pulls up on the drive and there's already a hubcap hanging off it and I think oh this is great you know it, there's an exchange no money changed hands we just did a swap God the father he is the father and he regards you as sons and daughters has done an exchange but it's not just some old clunky Honda for a clunky old Volkswagen the life in his son has become yours and the death that was at work in your life has become his. Now that's an exchange. Let's give the Lord a round of applause. It's worthy of it. So the second thing, the second element of the New Testament gospel was the death of the Savior, death of the anointed one, for the sins of the world. And then the third thing is the resurrection. As I read just a moment ago, you killed the author of life, but God has raised him from the dead. Acts 3.15, God has raised him from the dead. He is alive again. He was dead, but now he is alive. Now, one of my favorite stories in the scriptures is actually John 11. It's the raising of Lazarus, Lazarus. and I thought we'd read it. I was going to read the whole thing, but time doesn't permit it just... Although I love it, it takes too long. So uh, turn with me if you brought your Bible or you're on a smart device or it'll come up on the screen. But uh, let's look at John chapter 11, verses 38 to 44. And uh, this is where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And just to give you the backstory here, uh, Lazarus is a, friend of, a personal friend of Jesus. His sisters are personal friends, Martha and Mary, he gets a message that uh, Lazarus is seriously ill, and, uh, but, but he doesn't go straight away to heal Lazarus, which is, I guess, what they were hoping for. He dilly-dallies. And, uh, you know, people think he's going to go, and some think he's not going to go, and in the end, he doesn't go. So he hangs about there and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, it's it's urgent. Jesus sort of steps up and he says, okay, we're going now, we're going to Bethany. Bethany was two miles outside of Jerusalem and actually the disciples really didn't wanna go there. They didn't wanna go there because at this point in the story, in the narrative, things are really hotting up for Jesus. There is a groundswell of popular support. There is also a groundswell of opposition from the uh, religious authorities who are really taking the ump about Jesus. In fact, last time he was there, it nearly ended up nastily. So the disciples are going, oh, you know, he goes there, he'll, get, he'll end up dying, you know. So they didn't really want to go, but anyway, Thomas, bless him, Thomas the doubter, as rather unfairly called, says to the other disciples, right, we have gotta go. So they head off to see Lazarus. Now, During the course of this journey, the message comes to Jesus, Lazarus is dead, don't bother yourself. Jesus says this famously, memorably. Many of you will have heard this before. Jesus says, I am the resurrection, the life. I am the resurrection, the life. No one comes to me except by the Father. I am the resurrection and the life. So now let's pick up the story. All of that's gone before. Um, John 11, verses 38. And it says this. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. eek. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. And the crowd, the crowd, not the cloud, the crowd went wild. Eee! Come on, go wild with me for a minute. It's so good. The crowd went wild. So this is life after death, isn't it? He was well and truly dead. Four days in the tomb dead. Smelling dead. That's pretty dead. But suddenly Jesus comes who is the resurrection and the life and raises him from the dead. Now, you know, you'll have to do some of your own reading, maybe on that beach in Tenerife, or maybe if you can snatch a few moments this week in your busy schedule to read John 11 and what happens there. But actually, that really was the last straw as far as the, the religious people were concerned. And things began to accelerate after that in terms of Jesus's opposition. But the reason I wanted to read that story is that that is a raising from the dead, but it is not a resurrection. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. That is a raising from the dead, but it's not a resurrection. I don't know if you were in church a couple of weeks ago when Jenna, bless her heart, told a story about being a holiday. It was in Portugal, wasn't it? In Cyprus. I beg your pardon. They were in Cyprus last day on the beach, making the, the most of every opportunity to be there. And suddenly there's a commotion and a guy is drowned. And anyway, he gets hauled, he's an older man, he gets hauled out of the, out of the sea and he's on the uh, wet sand there and immediately people go into, you know, fortunately there's some people who know C- CPR, so they're doing that and Joel, who is uh, Jenna's brother-in-law, he, he, he's there helping people get him out and the crowds haven't turned up just yet, but he takes a turn to do CPR and all the while he's prying out loud, he's saying, oh Jesus, 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 and praying all this kind of stuff. Anyway, various other people, you know, lifeguards and various other officials turn up and he is well dead, well dead. And after a while, the people doing the CPR, you know, they, they say he's, you know, he's gone or something like that, and they begin to give up. And at that point, Joel, bless his heart, stands up and shouts, in the name of Jesus, wake up, in the name of Jesus, wake up. In the name of Jesus, wake up. And with that, this guy goes and vomits. And the crowd went wild. <laughs> Give the Lord a clap. <laughs> I probably messed the story up a bit, but in the essence, you know. Now, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about this you know this is Lazarus it's a coming alive but it's not the resurrection what was that that happened on that beach in Cyprus that was a coming alive that wasn't a resurrection I mean that poor guy he was you know we've taken off to hospital to be checked out but after a few days no doubt he was released and go home to be with his family and they're, they're all telling about how we thought we'd lost you and oh it's wonderful to have you here and oh God is good and all this kind of stuff and Suddenly the phone goes and it's somebody on the other end saying, I believe you had a car accident in the last two or three years. <laughs> uh, is there any truth in that? I had one of those calls um, the day before yesterday. I just say to them, where was that accident then? <laughs> they can never tell me. My point is this. That guy, even though he had been brought back to life, maybe had a white tunnel experience, be fascinated to talk about what was going on. Fact is that just like Lazarus, life after a little while returned to life. The annoying PPI phone calls, you know, the need to go to work, the credit card bill, oh my goodness, you know, all these things. That's life after death. But it's not resurrection. And I think all too often I, I'll speak to myself, when I have spoken. To people about my faith, and we've got on, you know, I I talk about you know, Western gospel. I say, you know, God is for us, not against us. You always thought God was angry with you. No, He isn't angry with you. Jesus, His Son, has died for us, and I do all of that, major and all that. And oh, by the way, yeah, this is an eternal gospel. There's life after death. Well, in the in the New Testament, the thing that really excited the apostles was the resurrection. And the implications of that. So I want the Holy Spirit to kind of expand my understanding a little bit of, of what's coming down the track of what this resurrection is about. Not just life after death with a PPI guy ringing me up every five minutes. So let's just, as I wind this up in the last 10, 15 minutes or so, let's just think about what this Resurrection is like and, and to help us with that and there's many places we could go and please do do a Google search and begin to do a bit of your own reading and a bit of your own study but just to whet your appetites let's look at Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 to 5 uh, if you've got a Bible great turn up if you've got a smart device great turn up it'll come up on the screen but if you haven't got a Bible and would like one just ask at the welcome desk and we will be happy to give you one so 21 And uh, let me forgive me, just talk amongst yourselves while I find this thing. Here we go, 21. Beginning at the first verse, John the Apostle, the writer, says, This is the end of many revelations. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I like the old version where it says, Behold, I make all things new. So that's just a little taster. But there are five things I can draw out of that just to sort of whet our appetites and help pad out, help, um, help bring a deeper understanding of what the resurrection is. The first thing is the big reveal. You know, drum roll, fanfare, and all the rest of it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. It's as if, you know, the, 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 the curtain is drawn You know, up until now we've been in the audience, if you like, and we can hear something's going on, the orchestra's tuning up. We can hear a bit of activity behind the curtain, and suddenly the curtain is open, and there's this blaze of colour of light, just like you know the theatre in the West End or whatever. But here it's for real. It's not a sham. It's not a show a big reveal and my belief is that every living creature that has ever been or gone all that is seen and unseen will see this, they'll see Jesus coming back as Lord and they will see the birth of the new creation. This is heralding a whole new age, a whole new way of living. Jesus in his body, his resurrection body, and that was a resurrection, not a coming alive again. He walked through walls. He could eat, but also he could ascend into heaven. This was a resurrection body. This was not just a coming alive like that poor chap on the beach in Cyprus, coughing and spluttering and what have you. So the first thing about the new creation is that things that have been unseen, things that have been promised, things that we may have caught rumors of will suddenly be revealed. The second thing in verse two is this wonderful imagery of the wedding. Verse two, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Celebration. That's what weddings are about, celebration. It's witnessing, witnessing the marriage of one couple, but it's a huge celebration. I, I had the good fortune to uh, be speaking at uh, Mark and Amy Bevis' daughter Hannah's, uh, Hannah and Ed's wedding uh, in July, and uh, I was, it was just one of those magical days. Now, every wedding is magical. Every wedding is magical, and I've been to many but the rain stopped, the sun came out. Everything just fell into place. In fact, I was—I've been a prayer partner with Mark for 20 odd years, maybe more, 25 years. And during this week, when Mark and I got together to pray, Mark—if I don't I hope he doesn't mind me showing this—he just said it was the happiest day of my life. There was something about it, and I agree with him. It was there was just something happening. It, everything came together and it was exponentially better than they had hoped. A wonderful day of celebration like this. This is the wedding feast. This is the thing that has been long prepared for. You know, Trevor's son Sam is getting married, is it, next, May next year, and they've been planning it for a year or two back. I mean, the, talk about length of time. Much anticipation, lots of saving, lots of deliberation, lots of, you know, preparing and considering and planning and all the rest of it. But finally, finally, the great day comes. This book is all working towards this moment in history where Christ is revealed as Lord and Savior of all that is seen and unseen, and he heralds in the new earth, the new kingdom, the new earth. The celebration, the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's what resurrection is about. Participating in that as an honored guest. I see that Linda Hall, bless her heart, Linda and John are in the congregation. Linda was invited to a wedding, and she went, she went to this place and turned up at the wrong church. Is that right? I'm sure it was—it was a wedding, but it wasn't your wedding. <laughs> I had to scuttle across town. Everybody saying, "Who are you?" And I, I don't know. I <laughs> turned up the wrong wedding. You know, you will be on the guest list for this wedding. You will be on the guest list. Your name will be in the book. Your name will be at the, on the table plan, and you'll find yourself much nearer the bride and groom than you expect it to be. Not at the back of the hall behind a pillar where the kitchens are and the door's always flying over like that, bang, bang. So you can't have a conversation with anyone. Everybody, anybody been to a meeting, a wedding like that? God. Awful. You're on the guest list. This is resurrection life. Thirdly, reconciliation, verse three says here, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. In the garden, as you know, Adam and Eve were expelled, sent from the presence of God. They were expelled. They were dispatched, and what's more, a great big angel was set on guard in front of the tree of life so they could not return. But here, God moves into the neighborhood, as Henry said. I love that quote from, is it Eugene Peterson or something like that? You know, when uh, a few weeks ago, we had the uh, queen come and visit Whipsnade Zoo. I live just a couple of miles from Whipsnade Zoo and she came to open the new elephant house. She gets all the best gigs. And so they mowed the lawn and Whipsnade Village sort of you know, mowed the lawn and everybody's on their best behavior and all the houses look sweet and all this kind of stuff and the queen arrives and she walks around and she snips this, I don't this elephant. And then she goes, has a cup of tea and disappears. That's a visit. God isn't going to visit. He's going to come and dwell with us. And we with him. That's what I'm talking about. That's resurrection life. No more expulsion. Just an enormous welcome home. And God himself dwells with us and we with him. Reconciliation brought together. Not done yet. Restoration, verse four. It says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. You know, I was reading that this morning and a thought struck me. Clearly, you know, I was, you know, haven't had time to develop that thought, but what I thought was interesting was if God comes and comes to dwell with us and then sets about wiping away every tear and dealing with the grief in our lives, maybe at this stage we're still carrying a remembrance of that, that pain. Otherwise, you know, why would you go around and wipe tears away and all the rest of it? So here we are in heaven, in this, well, I don't want to really call it heaven, this new heaven and this new earth, but there's still maybe a little bit of a remembrance. There's maybe still a few grave clothes. What did Jesus say to the people? Take the grave clothes off him. Maybe we still got a little bit of that about us, still a little bit of a remembrance of what we've been through. You know, I haven't got time to unpack this and be appropriate, but I have, I have been, done many funerals in my life and I have that been and sat with very, uh, I'm sitting on one woman, Very, very wealthy couple. Very, very wealthy couple. And her father died. And uh, she was absolutely inconsolable. She had all that the world could give. But the loss of her father just broke her. And she was inconsolable. This was many years ago. Equally many years ago. When I was, as you know, I served in the, uh, Felicity and I served in the inner city for many years. I remember visiting this dear old lady on the 17th floor of a block of flats. Went into the flat and The air was stuffy, it could really have done with the windows open, the food smells, you know, it was just like a prison really and she was there and she was sat, a big sort of, bless her heart, and a big sort of, I'm not being disrespectful, big sort of wet and dumpy sort of lump in the middle of the sofa, sobbing her eyes out because her husband had died, Now, economically speaking, That was as far as you can get from where I visited where this wealthy couple were. But these kind of things, these tragedies, these pains are common to us all. It's the human condition, part of it anyway. Doesn't matter how good life appears to be, we're subject to these things. But here we have this situation where the Lord God himself, who is the God of all comfort, Book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians tells us, And he comes away and he wipes every tear away. And he embraces and he comforts and there's no more mourning. It's gone. This is resurrection life. And finally, running out of time, the new creation, the new creation. It says in verse five, he who was seated on the throne said, and this is Jesus of course, behold I make all things new. I make all things new. Now at the beginning of that passage we hear about the new heaven and the new earth. But I believe, I truly believe it will be familiar. It won't be like some science fiction thing in the clouds. It won't be, oh my gosh, what's that? There will be an air of familiarity, why? Because Jesus says, I make all things new. As you know, I'm fond of classic cars. Trevor and I often go, part of a club, we go all over the place with this thing and we're doing up these 50 year old cars and all the rest of it. We make them new, they are often better than when they first came off the line in, in Coventry where they were built. That's about making new. What Jesus is not doing, he's saying, behold I start again, away with all that rubbish get rid of it, get it out of my sight, out of my mind, I'm done with that, that was a good idea at the time, seemed like a good idea at the time, it's actually turned out hopelessly, so get rid of all that, because this is the new thing now. It's true redemption. Yes, there's aspects of the new, yes, there's aspects of, of wonder because of novelty and things we'd never even dreamt of, but there's also a sense in which God leans down and he makes all things new. Because in the first creation, back in Genesis, when God made it, he stepped back and it was good. It wasn't a bad idea. It wasn't not bad for his first start. It wasn't eight out of 10 could try harder. It was good, the ravages of sin, Destroyed much of that. But God steps in, moves into the neighborhood and makes all things new. That's what I'm talking about. That's resurrection life. Now I could go on and on and on. I hope I've whetted your appetite to to think about this. Because the hope that is within us is for resurrection life. Not just life after death. It's resurrection life. That's what the hope is. So let's all stand. Let me have the band back up. Jesus said, John 10:10, I have come that you may have life, life in all its fullness. And when the Son of God says, I'm going to give you life, life in all its fullness, you better believe that that's something exceptional, something wonderful, a resurrection life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just want to say thank you to you for your presence. I want to say thank you for all that you're doing among us and the revelation that you're giving us and the way you are opening our eyes to that which is to come may we be ever truer witnesses to the truth and not settle for some contemporary culturally appropriate thing that is less than the truth so lord work your resurrection in life in us in jesus name